Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, August 5th already. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Robert J. Matava, an associate professor and the dean of the Graduate School of the Theology, uh, Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College. We're going to be talking about something called the Christendom Project, which is a great opportunity for students at different universities to gain a new appreciation of their faith while working towards a potential degree in theology at Christendom. But first, as always, we want to welcome everybody listening to us here at KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn, Bryan College Station, and also welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and also a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody that we are live, and if you have something that you need to share with us about your parish, about what's going on, give us a call, 85 Love Red Sea, 855 683 7332. And we always look forward to listening to you guys and having you all tell us what's on your mind. So feel free to give us a call. And I want to say a good morning to our station director and general manager, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? Good morning, Deacon Mike. Always a pleasure to be with you. And we were, we always have some great conversations off air before we get rolling for the show in the morning. And today was, was more of the same. And you, uh, it revolved around, uh, you have some, some thoughts that you want to give us on um, religious education in the pandemic lockdown era, correct? Well, yes, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because um, I'm serving as the director of religious education at our parish. And one of the challenges right now is, of course, how do we do religious education in the age of COVID-19? Exactly. Uh, the same things that is affecting our school districts. Uh, how do we do this safely? Do we meet in person? Do we do it virtually? Do we have some way that we get the materials to the families and have the families do homeschooling? And all these considerations, and then, of course, the guidelines from the CDC, the guidelines from the diocese, telling us, you know, the minimum standards, what's the best way to proceed. And all of those things are in flux, too. Yes, the constantly changing. You have, you know, different parameters, different understandings of what the disease is doing, what the general direction is. Is it spiking? Is it dropping? Is it? And depending on which numbers you look at, it changes day by day. Right. And so it's been a challenge for every parish out there. I'm quite sure. How do you do that? And then you have the different aspects of this. Uh, do you treat regular religious education differently from sacramental preparation? How do you deal with adults? How do you deal with 
kids. Kids are a whole lot harder harder to keep from social distancing. It's a lot harder to make a small child wear a mask. Basically, it, basically impossible from my uh, exactly. <laughs> and so you know these are all challenges. And so you know um, one of the big challenges, of course, is pleasing everyone. And that, of course, is an impossibility. There are those parents that would rather have their kids in a classroom uh, because they don't feel comfortable trying to do this right. on their own. Right. I think there's an old adage, you can't be all things to all people. Exactly, unless you're Jesus. <laughs> so, right. and uh, all of us uh, fall short of that. So this has been one of the major uh, things occupying uh, almost every parish at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but as I was planning through this and thinking about this, one of the things that came up is it also comes with blessings in disguise. Okay. Tell us about some of those. Uh, one of the things that we had decided at St. Anthony's is rather than meeting in person or trying to do it virtually, because a lot of our families don't have internet access that's reliable enough to do videos and Right. Things like this. Right. Uh, we're going to meet with the parents once a month and provide them the materials they need and uh, make the program so that no matter what age group of kids you have, what assortment okay. of so ages. So you're, you're going you're gonna to kind of do a, a packet, yes. one-room schoolhouse kind of approach this, for, the, yes. for the family. Right. Neat. That's neat. Yes. But uh, the wonderful thing about this is it gives us an opportunity to talk about the parents mm -hmm. and assist them in. So do a little coaching for them, a exactly. little and, instruction for them. Yes. And provide them with a little comfort level. Yeah. Where that you, you can do this. Yes. And this is not out of the realm of possibilities. And, uh, you will have the resources available to do this the way that right. you need but, to do it. And but you're going to you be evangelizing them at the same exactly. time like we were talking about Yes, and this provides an opportunity for those families that perhaps haven't had the catechesis in the past that would make them feel more comfortable teaching their kids, that this gives us an opportunity to reach out to those families and say, hey, and of course we'll have the catechists in contact with the families willing to help out. Hey, you know, what do you need? What do you feel comfortable with? What do you feel uncomfortable with? What questions do you have? What questions do you have? And how do we best answer those? And of course, the challenge is what do we do in the spring? What will change? What will stay the same? Right. And so, but... Um, now, let me ask you a kind of a tough question. I'm sure that somebody might hear that plan and, and think, well, for the the families who do that diligently, that's going to be great for those kids. But what about the, the kids who maybe are in a, a situation where they're really not going to get the instruction? Are they are they going to be behind? I mean, how are we going to catch them up? Well, uh, one of the things is, of course, we're going to ask the families to turn in sort of like a progress report. Oh, okay. And okay. so when they come to the meetings, they will get the materials for the following mm -hmm. month mm -hmm. and turn in what they've done the previous months. So we get, get a gauge of how much involvement there There's is. There's be some accountability there. Uh, yes, uh, there has to be so that we know. And then we can reach out to those families where there is not as much engagement and say, hey, what can we do to help? How can we get this? Uh, Very good. I think that sounds like a, I, I wish you the 
many many prayers St. Anthony's way, and I, I hope it is a big success. Well, it's don't good. just pray for St. Anthony's. Pray for every parish right. in the diocese because each one is going to have to address these challenges differently. That's right. And uh, everyone has different resources. Everyone has uh, different issues. So uh, pray for your parish. Pray for your priests. Pray for your catechists. Indeed. And Indeed. Uh, because this is all new for everybody. Um, and so hopefully this will be, as all things from God, work out for the best for all of us. But uh, we're praying for the short term turn around being yeah. a good thing. We know that's, th- that's going to be the case, that it's going to be all to the good, but we just don't know what that's going to look like. Exactly. And uh, this is why faith and trust are the same word. Uh, right. Right, right. Well, speaking of uh, faith and trust and uh, people who have that in abundance, let's talk about our Saint of the Week. Well, we were going to uh, talk today about the uh, uh, feast that is today, which is the dedication of the Basilica of Mary Major. Okay. And uh, we only have two on the calendar where we have the entire church celebrating the dedication of a church. Can I say what the other one is? I think I know. Is it the dedication of St. John Lateran? Exactly. Yes. But uh, the Basilica of Mary Major is interesting for the fact that it is a basilica dedicated to the Virgin Mary, and it is the oldest basilica in the Western Church. Okay. Um, And... Its start comes because of the Council of Ephesus, when the discussion about whether or not we refer to the Virgin as the Mother of God, Mm. uh, because there was a um, heresy at the time that refuted the church's claim that we should refer to Mary as the Mother of God. They said you can refer to her as a mother of Jesus, but you cannot refer to her as a mother of God. And, of course, the position of the council was that you can't do that. And the reason given is, of course, because everything we say about Mary, in effect, tells us something about Jesus. That's right. And so when we're talking about Mariology, which is just a study of Mary, it is always Christology in disguise Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it teaches us something about Jesus. And so the point the council was making is that if we say that Jesus, from the moment of his conception, was both God and man, and there was never a time from the beginning of the incarnation that he was not God, then if Mary is the mother of Jesus, by definition, Mary must be the mother of God. Right. Right. Not, of course, saying that Mary is the mother of the Godhead, the Godhead, but that if Jesus is God, if he is truly fully God and fully human, then Mary is the mother of God. And so, again, the whole point of this statement is not to tell us that Mary is so special, even though she is, but to tell us that Jesus is so special. Yeah. What's special about Mary is indivisible from what's special about Jesus, she she derives what's special about her from what's unique and special and divine and holy about our Lord. Exactly. Uh, and so anytime we talk about Mary, we're ultimately talking about Jesus. Right, 
Right. And this is why when we have, you know, consecrations to Mary, well, there is no such thing as a consecration to Mary that is not by default a consecration to Jesus. But what's fascinating about the Basilica of Mary Major is uh, there's one, of course, it was built right after the Council of Ephesus in 431. So it's basically 1,600 years old, and uh, the foundation of the church is still the original. It's been fixed a few times, earthquakes and age and things like this, but the church is still the church that was built in 432. But uh, there's a legend that goes with uh, the spot the church is built on is that the owner of the property wanted to give the land away and didn't know what he was supposed to do with it. And so in the middle of July, he walks up to his property and he asked God for a sign to tell him what he should do with it, and snow fell. Oh. <laughs> and this is why uh, there is such a thing as Our Lady of the Snows. Okay. And so um, he saw this as a sign that he should give the property to the church. I think that's a pretty and good have sign. the church built. And so um, they built the church um, on the... Uh, Esquiline Hill in Rome, and it has stood there for 1,600 years. Um, one of the other wonderful things about uh, the Basilica is it is p- reported to have a relic of the manger really? in it. Yes. So um, it's uh, one of these fascinating things that, you know, the church dedicated to Mary would have a relic of the manger Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a significant part of the beginning of the incarnation, uh, a reminder again, her role in all this. So um, again, anytime we speak of Mary, anytime we speak of a church dedicated to Mary, when we go to a church dedicated to Mary, we go to mass to receive the Eucharist, which is Jesus. So we should never try to separate the two. We should only serve to honor them. We're going to be back at the end of our break to talk to uh, Professor Mataba, and uh, I'm looking forward to that interview. It's fascinating, so I hope to see you all on the other side. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup, and uh, again, we are live, so if you're listening to us and you have a comment to make or something, feel free to give us a call, 85-LOVE-RED-SEA, 855-683-7332. And I want to welcome Dr. Robert J. Matava, an associate professor and the dean of the Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College. 
and we're going to be talking about the Christendom Project. Dr. Matava, how are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Thanks very much for having me, Deacon Mike. It's great to be with you. Uh, it is great to have you. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into the field of theology? Well, uh, I was actually a philosophy student in college, and I think what really one of the biggest things that drove me uh, in this direction was just the desire to um, find the overall kind of unifying purpose behind so many of the other things that I had studied before uh, in school. And so uh, one thing led to another. I studied both uh, theology and philosophy as an undergraduate at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and then uh, was fortunate to be able to continue working and, and my continuing go going to school after that. Uh, I did my master's in theology at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., and then uh, did my Ph.D. at St. Andrews in Scotland. And uh, I've really felt blessed to be able to dedicate my life to study, to learning, and then also to, to handing on the fruits of all that uh, for the sake of the Church. One of the things that uh, always struck me is the relationship between philosophy and theology. And um, just what exactly does philosophy try to do? Well, Philosophy is the search for wisdom. Uh, it seeks for truth wherever it can be found. And there's a close relationship, I think, between the two disciplines because uh, it is class the way it's classically put is that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. So it supplies uh, the believer with a kind of conceptual framework for thinking rigorously um, in, in, in respect to faith. So uh, philosophy supplies us with some categories of thought, with language, with distinctions and clarifications that a believer can use to make sense of the overall coherence of what's given to us in faith through divine revelation, through the scriptures, through the tradition of the Church. One of the things that struck me when I studied philosophy is when you look at the early philosophers, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, their insistence that there had to be something akin to God to make any of this make sense. Yeah, absolutely. They, they're looking for a kind of a, a first principle that can explain um, the, the, explain reality and unify uh, our experience of it. And uh, the amazing thing is that uh, they, ca they came very close to, to a recognition of, of a creator God, but um, that that Creator God, which is knowable by reason, was was first known historically uh, through through the Hebrews uh, with with his revelation to them to, through Moses in Exodus three fourteen, um, and uh, it's just an amazing thing. I've I've been fortunate to be able to dedicate a lot of my professional career to to thinking about the doctrine of creation and God's action in the world as providence and. Um, and, and how that relates to things like chance and freedom. And those are some some of the most difficult things I've ever thought about in my life, but it's been really rewarding to just think about uh, what it means for God to be the creator, the first principle of all that is. And that's one of the things that's, that's most rewarding for my students, too, I think, as they um, begin to uncover the overall reasons for it all, um, understanding the rationality of belief in God. Before we get into the Christendom Project, tell us a little bit about Christendom College. What makes it unique? Well, Christendom is a special place. I've been here for 10 years now. 
Um, we were founded in 1977 by Warren Carroll. Uh, Christendom is a small Catholic liberal arts college that's situated in the Shenandoah River Valley of the Blue Ridge Mountains in, in Virginia. And I'm at the Graduate School of Christendom. We were founded as an a independent catechetical institute uh, a little bit earlier than that, and then 20, a little over 20 years ago now merged with the college. Um, what makes Christendom unique above all is its dedication to the Catholic faith, to educating people in accordance with the teachings of the magisterium, and also an environment where learning and prayer and really a, a holistic Catholic life are lived. So there's kind of culture at Christendom College, which is informed by faith, but which permeates the, the whole life lived, not, not only what happens in the classroom, but also what happens on the athletic field, what happens in the dorms, the friendships that are made there. And that's true, I think, for both organs of the institution, the college and the graduate school. So it's uh, a, a, an institution that, above all, is defined by its commitment to the Catholic faith, and that understood in a, in a really holistic way. And that's something that's important today because there's a lot of range between how tightly Catholic universities and colleges prioritize their alignment with Catholic teaching. Yeah, that's right. And that's part of a, a long and, and dramatic story that, that has been unfolding for the last half century, really. Um, coming off of the Second Vatican Council and then in the wake of um, the magisterium's teaching in Humanae Vitae, the, the Land O'Lake Statement, and, and so on. Um, and, and there was really a situation of crisis where, in, in many cases, uh, our, our educational institutions, there's over 200 in, in North America, um, began to, there's sort of a, a rift was created or a crack between the, the pastoral hierarchy, the pastoral leadership of the church, and the academic administrative uh, leadership of our colleges and universities. And that's something that we're still very much living with the effects of today. We've seen uh, that story play out in different directions at different institutions. There have been a lot of, um, or not a lot, but, but several uh, younger institutions that were founded in the wake of the crisis uh, as an attempt at reform. Christendom College is, is a good example of, of one of those institutions. There are some institutions that have sought to reform from within, some quite old institutions that have tried to really turn themselves around and, and recover their Catholic identity. Um, and so th the future still remains to be seen, but there's a lot of work to be done uh, in, in the Lord's Vineyard in that respect. Education is, I think, one of the highest priorities of the Church and, and of our bishops, and uh, I also think that there's a lot of work to be done there. And uh, it's, 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 it's quite, a, quite a story, one that's still playing out in our own time. One of the reasons I brought this up is because thinking about the Christendom Project, and we're going to get the, into that in just a second— is the idea that if people know their faith, where they go to school is less important because they won't be dissuaded or persuaded in a direction that is incorrect. So the more we can catechize people, the better their ability to adhere to what the church teaches and understand why it does so. So tell us a little bit about the Christendom Project. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's very much related to the concern that you expressed. Um, I think that most of us are called to live in the world uh, as lay faithful, and all of us begin our lives in that way when we're younger, uh, even if some of us later will go into pursue a religious vocation. 
And so this is where we see most of our uh, Catholic young people, and this is where most of the the educated Catholic people come from, are from non-Catholic institutions. So the Christendom App Project is an attempt to to meet young, educated Catholics uh, where they're at. And that's the majority Catholic world of the non-Catholic or secularized uh, university. The idea for this project came first from a recognition of that priority, that uh, there's a great need to shore up catechetics, but also a great need for adult Catholics, young adult Catholics, to really learn their faith at the same level that they know their professional area. So many people coming out of universities are highly competent in physics, math, chemistry, law, business, education, but they're still going into the world as Catholic adults now raising families with an elementary knowledge of the faith. And so the Christendom App Project is an attempt to meet those individuals where they're at and supply something that they need, which is that kind of adult knowledge, adult appropriation of the faith. When we look out at the situation, we see that really 99%, I would wager, even more of our young people are in this environment. Um, Of the some 200 Catholic colleges and universities that I mentioned before, uh, a minority of those are really identifiably distinct from their secularized or secular public counterparts. Um, insofar as they have a curriculum that's really committed to the faith, that they try to build a campus environment and culture that's that's really imbued with the Catholic faith. And then uh, when we look at where our students are, only about 10% of them attend Catholic colleges and universities. So 90% of our students are at non-Catholic institutions, and then the 10% that are at Catholic institutions are in many cases at institutions that are not equipped to give them what ideally they would be getting uh, from the perspective of their faith and moral formation. So there's there's an enormous need there. And then when we look also at the situation, the religious situation in America, we see that the, the largest number of Uh, The largest religious group are Christians, and the largest number of Christians are Catholics, at least nominally. And the second largest number are ex-Catholics, people who were once Catholic, were baptized in the faith, but then left. And we know that over 80% of those individuals leave when they're in college or just after college. So when you connect these dots, and the dots I think are pretty close together, you see that there's a a tremendous need to meet the educational needs as Catholics of um, young adults where, where they are. And so part of our motive for the Kristen and Matt Project is just a recognition that uh, of that need. And then uh, the, the other side of it is that uh, I, as I was thinking about this problem one day, uh, and we were talking here at the graduate school about how we would uh, be able to extend our outreach more to Newman centers and Catholic student centers across the country, I literally got a cold call from my partner, Grant Freeman, who is a campus ministry professional at uh, Purdue University, St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Student Center. And out of the blue, he he cold called me and and basically articulated the same vision, uh, so much so that in that first conversation, I remember it was almost as if we were completing each other's sentences. So we just had this very exciting uh, kickoff, and then one thing led to another. We, We had more calls. I ended up going out there to Purdue, uh, meeting some students, meeting with him. And uh, that all began in 2016. And one thing led to another. By by the fall of 2018, we were piloting our first class. And uh, and the rest is history, still very much uh, in, in development. But um, that that's how we got started. I want to remind everybody, we're talking with Dr. Robert Matava, the uh, dean of the Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College. 
Uh, Dr. Matava, one of the things that you were talking about is that uh, it started with a cold call from Purdue, uh, but not from the university, from the student center at the university. So how did this build up from there, that you had an interest from the student center uh, and... uh, how did you flesh out that plan? Yeah, I think it, it started from the same recognition on Grant's part of, of what we were talking about just a moment ago. Um, what I learned only after this, this initial conversation with Grant was that it turns out he's a Christendom alum. Um, so I think that we were, we were thinking very much along the same wavelength. Uh, so here I was uh, talking out of the blue to someone I had never met who turns out to be an alumnus of Christendom College. And I think it was through his own background and education at Christendom, uh, his own his own faith and his own real forward-looking vision of where the church is at and, and being in the trenches with these students on the, with feet on the ground. Uh, he could see that there's this kind of clear and present need. And, uh, and so both of us just recognized that same, um, that same issue, and, and he gave me a call. And uh, we I just had a, a very sympathetic vision. We, we were on the same page. And uh, I think part, partly, too, he saw that uh, from his own education, the need uh, to reach students with the tradition, with the primary sources of the tradition, and also the need to do that in a context of friendship, where uh, it's not just students uh, as individuals with their books, but it's students in community, in conversation with each other, that have some mentorship, have some guidance, and, and, are, and are pushed toward the right sources, the right books, and, and who are challenged not just to accept what they're reading, but to think critically about it, to push each other on their ideas, but really to encounter the tradition through the primary sources, through the voices of the great writers, the fathers of the church, the scriptures, um, the primary source documents. Uh, so I think that his own education uh, came from, from that model and that's also reflective of, of what I do here at the graduate school. And so uh, we just really hit it off and, and, and were able to develop this idea in collaboration with each other. And it's been really rewarding, too, to see the fruits. Uh, we've had several students go through now since our first semester in the fall of 2018. And I'm really edified by the feedback that I get when I see how students aren't just learning this content about their faith, but it's actually changing their lives. When I hear stories about how what we talked about in in a class on the Fathers of the Church is coming out at a campfire uh, with the Catholic students at the student center, and this idea that the faith is something that you live out. It's not something that is uh, knowledge that's confined to your head, but it's something that's, uh, that's really impacting the lives of these young adults. Now, how does Christendom at work? What is the floor plan for this? How did you structure it? Well, the way that we deliver the lecture content is online. We live stream our lectures, which are given uh, from here in Virginia at the graduate school. And these courses are open to undergraduates, but also we've had a couple of graduate students. Um, so they're, you know, they're offered here by the Graduate School of Christendom because we have an online learning platform. Uh, we normally, our normal curriculum is a master's degree in theology, uh, but we have the, the the equipment here to be able to to record and to stream uh, our courses. So this is how we reach students elsewhere. In this case, at Purdue, uh, the, the the heart of this is 
lecture content that's delivered live online. But it's not only a matter of the individual student in front of his or her computer uh, with the lecture content. They're also engaging live with the professor, um, phone, email, outside of class. Uh, they're writing about what they're reading, and so they're reading it differently. They're not just passively reading sources, but they're constructing arguments. They're teaching, in a sense, what they're what they're learning. And so this gets them actively engaged and, and taking ownership of the ideas, and that also creates a relationship of dialogue between the individual student and the professor. So we're delivering the course content online, but in a way that's dynamic and not static. That involves a relationship between the student and the professor where they get to know each other and get to be in conversation with each other. But one of the most important elements, I think, is that we're trying to form these students into circles of, of conversation partners, of friends who live with each other, who see each other on a regular basis, and who meet regularly. We encourage them to meet and, and try to provide them with some support and direction to meet with each other weekly to share their work in progress. So when students are uh, turning in a paper, which we, we frequently will do short papers that, that uh uh, that are done throughout the semester rather than one long-term paper at the end. And the students will meet uh, on a regular basis to discuss the readings, to share their work with each other, in some cases to even do recitation of, uh, of certain passages from what they're reading, things that are really memorable or really important for the history of the tradition. And this starts a whole conversation that friendship is built around, and it helps us to overcome some of the hurdles of being at a distance. So the way that it's structured is that we we deliver a live online course, but which is also supplemented by students who are formed into a close-knit community around the material that they're studying and who are engaging not only with the professor and with the content material of the class, but also engaging with each other about it, both orally and in writing. One of the things I found that with uh, the onset of distance learning, you know, uh, classes online and things like this, how valuable small groups have become in the education process because it does provide the opportunity to germinate the ideas that you're receiving in class. Yeah, absolutely. Ideas are not just abstract concepts in a vacuum, but they're they're enfleshed realities. And I think that these small groups really um, help to bring to life these ideas and put them in the in the context that they should be in the the kind of lived context. Because also, what we're studying in these courses is something that is lived out. It's meant to it's meant to affect the decisions you make and how you live and. Uh, it's not just um, it's not just information that's that's static or that's of of merely historical importance. So I think those small groups are really important, and I've seen our students benefit a great deal uh, from them as well. Um, the the model for this for me in my own experience is is what I experienced as a graduate student in the UK and then at my first teaching post at at the University of Oxford in England. Uh, there they use a tutorial system which combines lectures with tutorials. Sometimes these are small group tutorials, kind of like what we do with the Chris and Matt project. Uh, sometimes they're one-on-one -on -one tutorials, more like they do at, at Oxford, one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two. And that's where I began my teaching career. And it was just an amazing uh, thing. For me, it was revolutionary because it was so different from the way that I had been educated as an American. Uh, and that model has its own strengths too, for sure. Um, but to be able to combine elements of these two approaches and, and have not only a, a rich 
an interactive lecture, but also to have something that's like a tutorial that brings students together in community and really gets them talking about what they're learning. It, it, it gets them to be active, it gets them into active ownership, I would say, of what it is they're reading um, in a way that it's impossible to do uh, without that small group. Now, you mentioned that uh, it's usually undergraduate students that uh, participate in the Christendom at Project. So I'm guessing that the hope is that perhaps these classes will be uh, useful as an elective in their undergraduate work. But you want the courses to also be valuable freestanding on their own for the students, correct? That's right. So students from any background can take the courses that we're offering, and we realize that not all students are going to be able to take many courses or even all of the courses. Um, if they are able to do the se sequence of all six courses, then they can earn a certificate from Christendom, uh, which, which then could also be a platform that they could use to build upon uh, an accelerated graduate degree. But most students, we realize, may only get to take one course or two courses. So each course is designed to be freestanding, though still complementary enough with the others that those students who are able to take multiple courses will see the interconnections between the topics and will, will have really a coherent education. Um, so you may have a student who's a business major, uh, but is able to take some of the Chris and Matt courses, and he may not be able to study theology or philosophy or history uh, at his own institution in the way that, that he's able to through this project. But by taking a sequence of courses this way, he can have a coherent, something that's almost like a minor or something a little less than a minor, depending on how many credits he's taking. Uh, but, it, but it will hang together, yet each individual course has enough independence that um, it, it makes sense on its own terms. And our aim here really is to uh, start from the idea, start from the question, what is it that young Catholic adults need to know? If, if we know that we can't deliver what's ideal, there's not a silver bullet solution, there's not a single perfect solution, what at least are the minimum things that are most essential for Catholics to know? And what we came to was that they need biblical literacy. They need a knowledge of the tradition. They need to know the essence of Catholicism uh, as, as understood from the earliest days of the Church's life. They need, at the same time, to know what it means to be Catholic today. Uh, how does the faith fit into our modern world? Um, they need the philosophical framework, the conceptual framework for dealing with the big questions like the existence of God that you mentioned earlier, or the problem of evil, the question of miracles, um, the relationship between faith and science. Uh, they need to understand the, the Church's prayer life, worship in the context of the, of the Church. The Church considers that to be your most important work. So what is that? What, what constitutes the fabric of, of Catholic uh, prayer life? And then also a, a framework for, for practical reasoning, for thinking morally, an ethical uh, framework, a knowledge of the basic principles of the natural law. Those were the things that we thought were most essential. And so we designed a, a mini curriculum, if you will, of, of courses that address each of those topics. Uh, so they're freestanding courses for beginners. They don't suppose that someone has background already in philosophy or theology or, or history. 
but uh, they're courses that, that are accessible but still challenging and still uh, meet the student where they're at as someone who's a college student who's capable of, uh, of engaging with this material on a serious level but, but isn't an expert and, and who's working outside of his or her field. Um, and, and then also that the courses would build on each other but still be relatively autonomous. Again, we're talking with Dr. Robert Matava, the Dean of Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College, and we're talking about Christendom at Project. One of the classes I noticed that you offer is uh, History 501, Early Christian Literature. And uh, one of the things that I find talking to people is that most Catholics that I speak with understand Catholicism from the Reformation forward. And they see all these things that is taught from a Protestant perspective as applying to the Catholic Church. And so uh, the notion of reading the early Church Fathers and seeing that the Catholic Church has originated from the first century, I think, is an important step. And just that class by itself, I think, is an important thing for uh, Catholic students uh, today to take. Yeah, you know, th that's one of my favorite classes to teach every time it comes around. Um, this is an area where I think it was Catholic, all Catholics should know uh, the Church Fathers, not only their writings and their ideas, but to know them as persons. And uh, this is, it's, it's so enjoyable for me to introduce students to these individuals who were, the, in a sense, uh, the, the earliest believers, not the founding fathers, Christ founded the Church, but, but those who had so much of an influence in shaping uh, the formulation of our faith. And one of the things that jumps out at all of us whenever we read these documents, and, and it's true for me too, anytime I go back and reread these sources, is the amazing continuity that we see between the faith today uh, and the faith of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century. Um, also to see how contemporary the fathers are, that you can pick up an author from the 4th century and read him, somebody like Augustine or somebody like John Chrysostom. And, and if, you, if you didn't know who you were reading, you would think you were reading someone from today with the same experiences that we have. And whether they're talking about the spiritual life or marriage and family life or wealth and poverty, um, it's amazing to see their witness and to see how relevant they are for our lives today and how, how easily we can relate to them. At the same time, when we look back and see uh, when they lived and how much, how much water has gone under the bridge, it helps us to appreciate the tradition and the stability of the tradition and to also see the roots of our faith, that they, that they run quite deep, uh, and that many of the things that we believe and do today are not innovations that happened in the Middle Ages or sometime after then, but were things that, that would have been recognizable to the very first Christians. Also, their witness, their in, intense love for Christ, their intense love for Christ and for the faith, they'd be willing to lay down their lives. We read the, the letters of uh, of Ignatius of Antioch, for example, and it's just, it's very inspiring. So it's one of my favorite courses to teach, and there we try to really put students in touch with what the essence of Catholicism is by looking back uh, at, at, at the Church in its earliest days. One of the reasons I was so fascinated with talking to you about the Christendom Matt Project is uh, we're 
here in College Station at the moment at St. Mary's Catholic Center attached to Texas A&M University. And this is a phenomenal Catholic Center. And so we have lots of Catholic students here. If they're listening to this radio program and they're listening to you talking about the Christendom at Project and they're intrigued, what should they do? The best thing for them to do is to, to give me a call. Send me an email. Um, uh, you can go to graduate.christendom.edu, which is our website, to get more information. You can also find my contact information and the school's contact information there. We'd be happy to talk with you. One of the things we recognize is that there's a lot of very good work being done across the country at Catholic student centers, uh, including at public universities. And in many cases, the students are getting a great Catholic formation there, even in some cases maybe better than they'd get at at a Catholic university. And what we want to do is really support that good work by providing what seems to be a missing link, uh, and that is a systematic and deep intellectual formation. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it complements the great pastoral work and and the great social activities that are being uh, supplied by student centers like St. Mary's, which is really a flagship example of of what should be happening uh, for Catholic college students. And so if there are students there who are interested, whether at St. Mary's or anywhere else, uh, I'm excited to talk to you about this. And and if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to to give us a call. We would love to to grow and to reach more individuals. Uh, We've had great success at Purdue, and uh, I think that students would benefit no matter where they are. And I don't want to be remiss because there's also a fantastic Catholic Student Center attached to Baylor University. So we have listeners in the Waco area also. So same thing holds for them, right? They can also give you a call and uh, see about perhaps taking one or two or all six of these courses. That's right. Absolutely. I've heard great things about what's happening at Baylor. I have some friends and and children of friends uh, who are Catholic students who have been through the program. It's an excellent university and a lot of exciting things happening there, not only uh, on the level of academics, but also uh, in respect to, to faith, Christian faith. And so, yes, if anyone is interested at Baylor or or anywhere else, I'd be happy to talk with them. Now, uh, we had talked about uh, your uh, collaboration with uh, the Student Center at Purdue, and uh, I'm guessing you would hope to perhaps be able to carry this forward to other student centers around the country that you have a closer relationship with them? Yes, that's right. Um, I've been traveling around, as has my partner Grant, and we've we've talked with a lot of people who are very excited about what we're doing. Um, there's always a process of, of building from that initial interest to, to students uh, committing to taking a class. Uh, but uh, we see a lot of budding interest uh, across across the country. We've been to several campuses in the Midwest, uh, some closer to home here in Virginia. And, uh, and yes, we think that there's a great need really across the country for the kind of formation that we're providing. And we would just be keen to, to work with anybody who, who's excited like we are about this, who sees the need uh, and who's, who's willing to, to, to take the plunge, students really, uh, who, are, who want to go beyond uh, just uh, the social life of the Catholic Campus Ministry Centers, who are willing to, to commit themselves to study, uh, who see that it's feasible, that we're putting it within their reach, but who also want to go deeper with their faith. We would love to be in contact with them. 
one thing I wanted to make sure we reiterate is that if someone is interested and decides to take all six of these courses, uh, it can be a stepping stone to getting a master's degree, correct? That's right. So the students can take these courses for credit through Christendom, and then if they take the sequence of all six, this leads to a credential from Christendom, a pregraduate certificate in Catholic thought and culture. That's a stepping stone that will accelerate them through the Master of Arts program here at Christendom. And it's also a way of us providing an institutional credential that certifies that they've done something really significant. All six courses amounts to 18 credits. So this is like a minor uh, field of study if a student were to go through all of the courses. And it may be the case that their home institution can't credential them in that way, but at least Christendom will. The other point, though, is that because they're earning credit through Christendom, uh, and we're accredited through SAC COC, it's our regional accrediting body, uh, the same accrediting body that, that accredits UNC and Duke and, and the other schools in our region, uh, students who earn credit through Christendom can then apply to have those credits transferred at their home institution. So this is a great advantage. Students can take a course, and it's not simply an extracurricular activity, but it's something that can actually help them toward their degree at their home institution. Christendom grants credit, but then they can seek to have those credits transferred in, and they may count as gen ed credits or as elective credits, but in some cases they may also uh, cover requirements in their core curriculum for humanities or for related areas of study. As a reminder, we're talking with Dr. Robert Matava, the Dean of the Graduate School of Theology at Christendom College, and we're talking about the Christendom at Project. When um, students show an interest in this, uh, and uh, I've had lots of uh, people ask me about, uh, you know, receiving a, a master's degree. Can they sign up uh, to the graduate school with uh, and take all these courses at once? Well, it depends on the cycle. They can take all of the courses, but they can't take them all at once. No. Um, so we go through a semester semesterly cycle where typically we run at least two of these courses at a time. Uh, which courses that is just depends on where we are on the schedule. But students can take these courses. Uh, they can take multiple courses at a time if their schedule allows them to do that. Um, one question that we've begun to explore is whether to offer these in the summertime as well. Sometimes students have a little bit more freedom and flexibility in the summer. That makes the communal dimension a little bit harder to achieve, but that's something that we're looking at. Uh, there's also a question about parents and other individuals who are, are seeking this kind of formation, but uh, who may be beyond their college years. And, and that, again, is a kind of new area that we're looking at. Our main focus is on reaching those Catholic college students, um, because that's where we see the greatest need. But there's no reason that someone, uh, say, at a parish or the parents of a college student, that, that want to be getting the same formation as their son or daughter couldn't do the same thing. And so I'd encourage those, those individuals to just simply give me a call, contact the graduate school, and, um, and in, in principle, it's possible to do that. One of the key things that, that, we're, that we're seeking to retain, though, is that the, the individuals who are taking these courses 
are doing it in a kind of context where they have conversation, where they have community. And so that naturally happens around a Catholic student center. If someone else were interested in, in uh, pursuing a master's degree or, or you know, maybe couldn't pursue an entire master's degree, but wanted to get some kind of coherent, smaller scale uh, program of study, which would be the very thing that this program offers, um, we'd, we'd be keen to to talk to them about how they can do that in a community context. Um, is there is there a circle of people at their parish, for example, um, that they can connect with? Because that human aspect, that back and forth, the conversation, sharing ideas is so important. Uh, it helps us to overcome the limitations of online learning and really to draw the best of both worlds. We get the the flexibility um, and and the all the all the advantages of convenience that come with being able to deliver courses online, but still without losing that that personal element. And I think that's what I uh, think is uh, such a plus for this program that you emphasize the need for the community aspect of the education, the opportunity to share your thoughts and ideas, and therefore you know grow through the observations of others. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's been so much, too, a part of, I think, both Grant's education and my education, uh, that we've seen what a difference um, an individual professor can make, the difference that uh, your peers can make to your learning. And so we want to really foster that. Now, I wanted to drift a little bit into the broader aspect of this, how it relates to catechesis as a whole. Uh, the general thought is that in the past 40 or 50 years of church life, catechesis has been somewhat lacking. Uh, it's sh showing a great turnaround right now, but we have these segments of the Catholic population that have a poor foundation in their faith. So how do you see this project aiding in this in the long run, where you're building the faith of young people and then sending them out into the world? That's a great question. I think in some ways it's downstream from that challenge, and in some ways it's upstream from it. One thing that's important to clarify is that the courses that we offer aren't catechesis in the strict sense of the mm -hmm. word. They're, they're academic courses in philosophy and history, cognate disciplines like that. But they're, in that sense, downstream from catechesis or downstream from the lack of catechesis that, that should have been there but, but, but which is missing. That's unfortunately the situation we find ourselves in uh, many times today, that for decades now we've had a real crisis of catechesis. This was what motivated the foundation of the graduate school back in 1969 with Monsignor Eugene Cavan, who was a great leader in the catechetical movement uh, in the United States uh, it, during that time. And, and so this institution was founded to really address that crisis and to form teachers, to form catechists. That was its original charge. And so what we see is that many of our young people are very educated and very competent in their field, but they, they lack that formation in their faith that they, that they should have gotten in their youth. And these courses are downstream from that challenge insofar as they try to give them that adult, deeper appropriation of what is Catholicism? How do I wrestle with the big questions of life? What are at least the philosophical tools I can use to do that? How can I be a literate, um, competent, kind of knowledgeable adult Catholic? 
And it's upstream also from the challenge of catechetics because these individuals who now may be 18, 19, 20, 21, and who are studying for their profession in a public university soon will be out in the field. They'll be a, a professional Catholic working in the secular world, probably getting married. They'll have a house, a mortgage of their own, you know, embedded in some parish. And soon they're going to be tasked with raising their children in the faith. And you can't give what you don't have. So our hope is that while this isn't a, a full-bore Catholic education in the deepest, richest sense, it, it is giving them something very deep and very rich where they are in a way that they can receive. And hopefully this both gives them a formation in the essentials, but also whets their appetite for more so that they become lifelong learners. Part of what we're aiming for is not just to get them to know certain content about the faith, which is crucial, but also to be developed morally, but also developed academically, intellectually as learners. We want them to learn how to learn so that as they leave, their appetite is whetted to know the faith better, but also they're inquisitive, that they ask questions, they ask deep and challenging questions, and they know how to think and how to seek for an answer. And so that when they become parents, uh, we hope that they'll have some foundation to stand on, uh, but also be able to pass on the faith in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I can't believe that it's already over with. Dr. Matava, thank you very much for talking uh, to us about the Christendom at Project. I hope our listeners were educated, inspired, and encouraged to pursue learning more about their faith. Thank you for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host for the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Thank you very much.